If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries Audible books in every genre imaginable business, classics, history, self development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30 day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash replay and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Currently, I am listening to the classic One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Black Fish, Blue Fish, Old Fish, New Fish. Okay, that's、This、genius. Go to audible.com slash replay. That's audible.com slash replay and get started today. Um, so, thanks, thanks both for being here. You know, I'm eager to continue kind of a conversation that started yesterday, but I think it's always helpful kind of for the crowd to talk about how do you come at this future of automotive、uh, question? What's your background and, and where, where are you sort of approaching this from? Sure. So,、um, my research at Stanford is on transportation innovation, so looking at new business models, new technologies, how they converge. And Nato is trying to build a bridge towards the autonomous world. By actually helping human drivers get better、uh, and learn how the best humans drive and help augment the senses. So, the sensory part of what you think of in, in the Google car or in the Tesla、uh, is what we're retrofitting to any car. And I'm on the dark side of the venture capital world, helping the corporates with,、uh, with venture capital. I'm particularly fascinated、uh, not just with the autonomous car, which is obviously super important for BMW and everybody. But for kind of the industrial revolution that spurs and how that changes really everything about the world on the other side once we have autonomous cars. And they're very soon, very close. So I want to get to the future we'll get to.、Um, but first, I, I kind of want to spend some time on the how we get there. Because、um, I think one of the themes that you know, has certainly come up is you know, there's how you would do it on a clean sheet of paper, and then how do you do it with hundreds of millions of cars already on the road?、Um, Mark, you've invested in a lot of these companies and you advise BMW on their investments,、mm-hmm. but a lot of the companies you're, talking, you're investing in are also companies that might one day you know, compete with the BMWs of the world. How, how do you view the road from where we are today? What, what parts of it are solve technology? What parts still need a lot of investment? And what parts the technology is there, but there's other hurdles safety, regulatory, whatever, what have you? Uh, the, the,、uh, fundamentally, the autonomous car does three things, right? So, first, the autonomous car has to do p- perception. It has to figure out where it is and what's going on around it. And that, to be honest, is the part that's not fully baked. And that's where the deep learning really comes in.、Um, and then there's sort of the planning. Of given where I am and where everything else is and where I'm trying to get to, what are all the paths I can get there? And, and the planning, it's in pretty good shape.、Um, but it has to be done fast and dynamically you know, all the time. And then there's sort of the robot in the machine that actually has to drive for you, turn the steering wheel, apply the engine, and all that. That's 
that's baked. Mm-hmm. We're good. Um, so, so the you know at this point, the understanding where we are, part of that, the important part of that is understanding where we are given that there's real-world people and real-world problems around us. What are some of the things that are hardest? Is it pedestrians? Is it human drivers? Because the autonomous car, I'm sure, could do a great job if it was with other autonomous cars and just had to live with other autonomous cars. Yeah, and we're never going to get there. And, and I don't even know that that's the right goal because there'll always be pedestrians and dogs and, and bicyclists and motorcyclists that are not autonomous and not robotic controlled, and that's okay. We, we don't need an autonomous fleet in order to have all the benefits, in particular the safety and life savings of, of, of autonomous. Um, it, it just doesn't need to be pervasive. And it I know works. you're really passionate about it. This came up yesterday. You know, one of the classic scenarios was raised, you know, uh, autonomous car, the brakes fail, it's going to have to run into someone, does it kill grandma or the little kid? Um, I know you, you feel particularly passionate about not just that question, but the, the centralness of that question. I, you know, I, I, we were talking about just before this, the, that it, it is kind of weird for ethics to be programming in those decisions um, because in a Maybe some of that's random in the real world. Um, you make it when you codify it. It's a little different. But but any delay in getting autonomy out there is a crime. I mean, we're killing 33,000 people a year just in the U.S., a million around the world. That kind of carnage, you know, if if we had a 9-11 a week, in three weeks we'd shut down the airlines and fix it. We got to do that. And Stefan, how did you kind of come at this? How did you decide this is the piece of it I want to address? And explain the technology because you guys kind of came out of stealth. I think like last week was yes, it. Yes, that's right. Uh, so not everyone had a chance to read uh, Mark's story on Recode. So what, what, what are you guys doing? Yeah. So I very much agree with Mark's characterization that the perception problem is the really hard part, right? The actually actuating and driving the car, steering. Every OEM already knows how to do that part. Um, so that's what we're tackling. It's the perception side of this equation, using machine learning and computer vision um, to basically understand what's going on around a car. But the other half that people haven't spent as much time thinking about is actually what's going on inside the car. Uh, because most accidents, as we call them, really they're crashes, they're not accidents, they're actually caused by somebody making a mistake, are actually caused by the human. 90% of accidents, statistics vary a little bit, but roughly 90% of accidents have human factors or, or human mistakes as their root cause. So if we're just looking at the outside where are the other cars and planning our path, that's half the equation. We actually need to know what the humans are doing, and particularly as you were asking about it you know, already, in a world where we're still mixing autonomous cars and human-driven cars, it's even more important to know what the humans are doing because the humans are going to be a lot less predictable than the mm-hmm. autonomous cars, right? And so they're actually the threat. So we're, we're, uh, we have a dual camera system, one looking out at the outside world, mapping out uh, the environment, recognizing other vehicles, pedestrians, and one looking inward, tracking what the driver's doing. Not to record what you're doing in your car, that's, we're not interested in uh, your privacy, but to actually track your movement so I can see where you're looking, what you're paying attention to. Do you recognize this car that's barreling at you 
that you should stop for? Do you recognize that the car ahead of you has come to a stop? Did you actually glance at the stop sign as you were approaching it? Because that allows me to do much more intelligent things in terms of initially warning you. We're a system to assist the driver. We're not driving autonomously at this stage. But that allows you to actually respond both to the changing environment and to the changing human. And if any of you have driven a high-end car in, in the last couple of years, they almost all have automatic uh, driver assistance forward collision warning in them. But the number one experience that people has is it's really annoying because it beeps at you all the time. It tells you that something's happening. And it's not actually attuned to whether you already saw it and, and whether you're able to see it. So is that really it. what the first version of the product will do? It'll warn the, you? The first version is a, is a smarter guidance system that basically helps warn you about dangers. And we're really initially working with, with fleets, with professional drivers who drive all day, so that their fleet manager can also track where the vehicles are and see if any vehicle's gotten into trouble. Now, Will, that you mentioned you're not interested in tracking them, but I'm sure the fleet managers are. Will it say, will it give them data on who's driving better, who's paying better attention, or that's... For, for the fleet version, yes. The fleet yeah. will know who's driving well, who's not. And in particular, we're tying it into the whole coaching dimension, because the goal is not just to rat out the bad drivers, but actually to say what kinds of mistakes are they making so they can then work on training and coaching on those particular skills. For some drivers, that may be following too closely. For some, that may be stopping too late. Uh, and the important thing is because we have the visual data, it's all very contextual. So if you look at a lot of the current solution, it's did you go over the speed limit? Well, as any of us who drive here know, you can't drive on 280 without going over the speed limit. Otherwise, you become a road hazard, right? If you're actually literally going 65, everybody's passing you near this moving obstacle. So our system actually looks at the context around you and says, are you going at an unreasonable speed given the rest of traffic mm -hmm. flow around you? Which might actually be that 45 is an unreasonable speed if the highway is jammed and nearly stopped, right? And so it's that contextual. And do you handle things, you've got one camera looking in, is it monitoring for things like I'm looking down, at, whether it's yes. the radio or my phone, and what does it do with that? So we, we tune the warnings to that. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking down at your phone and the car ahead of you has come to a stop, we're going to give an alert much earlier than if you're already looking ahead at, at that vehicle itself. Is there any risk? I mean, that's, that's great. And yeah. in, at first blush, it's like, oh, that's perfect. Is there any risk that that makes the driver feel more comfortable looking down because they're going to get a warning? And how do you deal with that? Well, so we're going to track how often you look down. If it keeps making you look down more, yes, we're going to let you know that, too, that uh, that's unacceptable behavior. In fact, in the fleet, most fleets have a policy oh. of not actually allowing you to use your phone at all except in an emergency. We can do something slightly more intelligent and actually judge whether in the context, if you're pulled over to the side of the road right. and stop, it's perfectly fine. If you're in the middle of a highway, then you don't want to be using your phone, right? The other thing I want to come back to, you know, is you, you talked about what's this transition look like, mm -hmm. right? And, and Mark's giving you sort of the technical roadmap of what pieces need work on. I think the other thing we need to think about is there are three very different deployment scenarios that people are working on, right? One is what you see all of the high-end automakers working on and many of the tier one suppliers, which is to automate highway driving, mm -hmm. Um, as Mark already alluded to, it's more constrained. There's clear lane markings. You know, we've, we've gotten rid of all the dogs and pedestrians, right? So it's only other vehicles. It's kind of clear on a highway which way you're supposed to go. The lanes are pretty clear. So that's, relatively speaking, as a perception problem, that's easier. Uh, and we're very close to that being available to consumers. In fact, there's a, there's a Mercedes uh, S500 already out there that basically has lane following plus automatic cruise control that's essentially highway driving ability. And a number of companies have demonstrated driving across the U.S., you know, from here mm -hmm. to Las Vegas. So that's one scenario. The second is what you see a bunch of the startups and Google as well doing, which is to build a vehicle that's fully autonomous but in a local geofenced constrained environment. 
typically lower speed environment. Google's doing under 25 miles per hour. Uh, other companies are working on in pedestrian zones only. And again, that's a simple problem. You're not dealing with high speed collisions. The threat of actually causing a fatality is pretty low, just given the speeds. And you're, no, you're doing it in a very well mapped, very well known environment with a, with a bunch of constraints. Right? The third way to get there is actually to look at how are humans driving? What makes people good drivers? Because the thing we forget, on average, humans are actually pretty good drivers. Right? We, we typically drive 1.4 million miles between significant accidents. That's a lot of good driving. Uh, we also forget that a third of the population basically will never have an accident in their lifetime. So what are those people doing? Clearly, they've learned something that the 20% who cause most of the accidents haven't learned. If you're a car maker, an insurance company, you'd want to actually know that. What are the third that really are never having accidents? How are they responding? And that's part of what we're studying as we help drivers get better. We're looking at the people who are driving well. We're not going to hassle them and interrupt them, but we're going to pick up what are actually those patterns that allow them to drive well. I'm skeptical that the OEM path actually leads to success because the roadmap for that is, and Mark and I have talked about this at length, is ever more autonomy added incrementally to the car. And you can go on YouTube and see some very scary videos of people jury-rigging their Mercedes with a Coke can, which happens to have just the weight of the human hand. So the car thinks the human is still actually steering and has their hand on the wheel, but of course the guy is climbing to the back seat to retrieve his briefcase. Uh, and that is exactly the nightmare scenario of actually autonomy causing crashes uh, that everybody worries about. So if we have to rely on the human to take over when bad stuff happens, uh, we're actually... Uh, building in some really, really serious crashes, and we're not going to get to the safe. So we've talked about kind of the paths, and, and, and now I want to get into who's doing it. And So given that, um, one might infer from your answer that you, you would be on the side that the uh, Googles and Apples of the world are going to get there faster than the car makers, and be, the traditional car makers are going to be under pressure. Is that your sense? It's and kind then, of, you know, you said... The, it's a question of who's going to get there first. The question is, what's the definition of there, there yeah. right? Um, the, the guys who want to have autonomous cars, by their definition by 2020, will succeed at making what generically people call level three cars. So the autonomy does rely on having somebody in a driver's seat mm -hmm. ready to take over and, and with 10 or 15 seconds or whatever the delay is, they, it may you know, right. come to the side of the road and hand control back to the driver. The, the, many of us have sort of concluded personally, I don't know that the car companies have made public decisions, that the going straight to level four makes more sense. That, that the, the level three, you know, who's, who's on first, who's in charge, is an untenable handoff. And it's in fact, safer and maybe easier to kind of go straight to where the robot is in charge, the robot's driving. And that, that's, you know, that, the, the interesting business side of that is it sets up what I call the Nokia moment, right? Where, you know, the guys who want to keep making flip phones think nobody can penetrate their, their special world and, and then an sort iPhone of right, comes out, except, yeah. and the market shares change in no time. If the legacy guys keep making level three cars, and somebody comes out with a level four car, if you're one of those people that wants to have what I call the grandpa conversation, grandpa, give me your keys, um, you know, grandpa says, 
I can buy a level four car and I still have mobility. It, it, it's just a compelling argument to go all the way to the real solution. And that's a really good bridge to sort of where does the future, I mean, this is where we start to get into how does society change. Level four cars, as you mentioned it, basically the cars that fully self-drive, suddenly you have a huge aging senior population that can start to go places. Teenagers. Um, teenagers, I mean, I, we came up yesterday, I was encouraged to hear that my two and a half year old may never have to drive a car if he doesn't want to. Um, what else about society starts to change? I mean, we've heard body shops go away because there aren't enough collisions to justify them. Cities are designed differently because you don't need as many parking spaces because the self-driving cars can drive, block a driveway until someone needs <laughs> to get out. What are some of the things that most have you excited of this future? What's, what's really most exciting, I think, is the convergence of what we've seen today, right? So you add autonomy to electrification, to the connected car, and to sharing, and things change fundamentally. Because the autonomous car can reposition itself, so I don't have to wait for a driver anymore. I can get the closest car. We, don't, we no longer care about keeping each and every driver busy because the autonomous car is perfectly fine pulling off the road somewhere and waiting for the next call. Right? If we share, we have a mixed set of vehicles, so you can actually hire the vehicle for the particular kind of trip you're taking, anywhere from a big pickup if you're carrying something to an SUV if you're going up into the mountains to a little car if you're really just getting across town. And that radically changes the economics, because basically each of us right now is buying a car and spending $7,000 a year in depreciation to basically park it 96% of the time, right? So we've all bought cars essentially to park them and to have the bragging rights of owning it. And that goes away if you combine autonomy with sharing. And electrification gives you ability to change the shape of the car, the safety of the cars we've seen with Tesla totally different configurations are suddenly possible. Electric cars can drive forward and backward in the same way at the same speeds. So suddenly you can imagine you don't have to back into parking spaces in the same way and back out. You can literally just pause, stop, and keep going again. And, and you've already alluded to the fact, you know, that 25% of land in cities is devoted to parking of some kind. That's a huge real estate development opportunity. Uh, Mark and I have talked before, the price of real estate is going to evolve, right? Right now you've got this gradient where being close to a city is more valuable than being out in the, in the rural areas, well, that could radically change uh, with autonomy, right? Uh, similarly, a lot of the reasons why people don't like living downtown because it's congested, a third of traffic is just people looking for parking. Well, autonomous cars don't have to look for parking. You can just be dropped off and pick up the next passenger. So we can imagine inner cities completely changing in terms of their, their traffic pattern. Add sharing on top of that. Now I go from 1.2 people per car to maybe two, three people per car, and suddenly I've got a lot less vehicles on the road uh, than historically. That's, that's pretty game-changing. I was just speaking yesterday at a conference nobody here would ever go to, the Urban Land Institute. This is the, all the big real estate de de developers talking about their future, and they're finally starting to think about transportation as being a key part of designing the future city, but there's still building codes that require so many four, parking spaces. four parking spaces per thousand square feet. You know, um, okay, but in fact, maybe they want to be building buildings that are zero per thousand, but have lots of pickup and drop-off place. The, um, you know, thinking about other things that get disrupted and changed. Um, you know, who's who's never in the room thinking about the the autonomous car? Are the airlines? and Boeing and Airbus. But in fact, they're cruising for a bruising. Um, 
the, the, it's such a pleasure to drive, to, to fly with TSA and <laughs> waiting and baggage and all that. But, you know, if you and I wanted to hike the Grand Canyon tomorrow, um, why don't we just go get in the car, take a nap, watch a movie, eat, and wake up at the Grand Canyon tomorrow morning and go? Um, I think any, if I had a meeting tomorrow in L.A., why wouldn't I just get in the car at 10 o'clock tonight, sleep on the way there, get there, go to a gym, work out, and go to my meeting? Uh, you know, Motel 6 goes away. Um, We're going to miss those TSA people. Yeah. <laughs> the free massages. So I think, I think the short-haul short hub-and-spoke stuff goes away. Airlines are great for long distance, and we'll still use them for that. The other part we haven't talked about is the entire regulatory system, the entire insurance system today is around the drivers. Mm -hmm. That's meaningless in a world of autonomous cars. And we right. talked, uh, you know, this is another one of those things that gets held up. Well, who's going to pay for the crash? Never mind that there's 95% less crashes. Right. Volvo, you know, made a very interesting right. announcement and right. said, you know, when we get there, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll foot the bill. Um, is, it, is that more of a red herring or is it a significant problem or how do it's you guys a, see the it's insurance? A, it's a breakthrough. It's a big deal because if, I mean... It's curious that car companies don't provide insurance as part of the bundle. I mean, they're, they're looking for ways to monetize this capital thing to get recurring revenue. They sort of gave up on making money off gas and oil, right? They let Shell and Exxon do that. But now they need to figure out what else can I do to keep a relationship with my consumer so maybe I can supply them other things and... If you're big enough to be a car company, you're big enough to be an insurance company. Great. Well, I have a few more ideas, but I want to see if there's questions from the audience. Hi there. I have a question. I'm interested in your perspective on the role of detailed maps in delivering on the future of fully autonomous vehicles or your perspective if you think that you know, sensors alone might be able to deliver that fully autonomous capability without the maps. Yeah, I mean, right now, people are relying on LiDAR-based maps, right? So highly accurate uh, point clouds that give you exact distances. Uh, from our perspective at NADA, we don't believe that you need LiDAR. Uh, we're doing it purely with computer vision and actually get to the same level of accuracy. But the second half of your question is, uh, you know, should each car do it alone, right? So the, the sort of metaphor of, you know, the, the, the idiot savant child that has never had anybody teaching them how to do anything. And I think that's a very expensive, very slow way to get there. Uh, that's part of what's inhibiting the car companies from going to level four because every conceivable scenario, right? Many of you have probably seen Google's video of the car encounters a person in a wheelchair chasing a set of ducks around the road. How could you ever have programmed that in? By the way, that wouldn't be on any map either because that just happened once, right? But if you try to solve it with each car able to handle any kind of conceivable situation that you throw at it, you have to throw so much computing power into every car that it gets really expensive. So part of our thesis is not just the map, but actually the connectivity into the cloud so that if you're driving down the highway, you don't have to have your car recognize that there's a traffic jam a mile ahead. You learn that from another car that has just seen the traffic jam. And literally with vision, I don't have to wait for an averaging of GPS signals to say, well, 101's kind of bottlenecked right now. I can actually see the chain of taillights and know there's a shockwave coming at me and I should slow down. And 
that ability for the vehicles to talk to each other, to learn from each other, really is the game changer in allowing this change to happen much faster and much cheaper because the computing hardware that we're putting in is a couple hundred dollars, not buying a Tesla for you know, $100,000 uh, with a totally different level of, of capability. Basically taken into the fact, because you're learning from the other cars around, so each car doesn't actually have to be as smart as it would if it's all driving on its own. And what, is it, what are the communications needs? Is it, um, are all cars to do this going to need the cloud connection, the 4G LTE that we're starting to see built in? Are they going to need vehicle-to-vehicle communication so that they can get that millisecond warning that the car ahead's break? How do you see that piece evolving? Yeah, so if you look today, most cars have essentially 3G level of connectivity, right? They do updates to the maps, some very basic traffic information, sometimes even just by our radio signal. Um, right now, we're on the cusp of having that 4G LTE connection uh, where you can begin to have meaningful services, listening to your favorite music, getting, getting other real-time information. In our case, we are using 4G LTE to basically feed data that has to come to you quickly. So the kind of example I gave of uh, traffic information, a crash that's a, that has happened ahead of you, you know, road debris that's on the road, those kinds, of, those kinds of needs where you don't need to know it in milliseconds, but you do need to know it in, in under a minute. As we get to really having the cars navigate and interact with each other automatically without humans involved, we'll need the direct vehicle-to-vehicle link. Uh, and then you're talking about having to respond in about 100 milliseconds or less, which is typically how safety systems work. That, that's how quickly they, they trigger. I'm a skeptic that we'll ever need the, the third category that people have talked about, which is vehicle-to-infrastructure. Uh, and the reason is if you've got the vehicles talking to each other and sharing their learnings about the environment, You've essentially become smart about everything that you can't see because somebody else has seen it or is looking at it right now. Unless you wanted, you'd need vehicle to infrastructure if you wanted the red lights themselves to adjust to the traffic or those kinds of things. Right, but the moment the vehicles are talking to the cloud, which is already our mm-hmm. model, um, the, the cloud already knows what's going right. on. And you know, the operator of streetlights who already has a piece of software that's running their streetlights can simply access that information too. Because if you really talk about upgrading every stop sign to have a digital processor in it, that's a very expensive proposition, right? We've spent 70 years building our road infrastructure, having to rip all that out, running cabling there. As anybody who's putting electric vehicle charging knows, it's not actually the charger that's expensive, it's running the wire underground right. and digging up the pavement that's expensive, so. Mark, um, I, I kind of want to give you the last word in terms of you, you're investing in a lot of these things. Where, where do you see the big opportunities and where are some of the areas that are maybe over-invested even despite this big growth opportunity? Oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, I, I, don't, I don't... The space is, has really come on the scene for real only in the last one or two years. Um, and we've gone from seeing a mention about autonomous stuff, you know, once a month, to every day. So I, I don't see anything over-invested in yet. Um, there's a lot of interest. Um, there's, there's whole new car companies, you know, Zooks and Faraday Future and folks like that that are pulling in really big money to go try to do the next iteration on Tesla. Um, I, I'm cheering for them all. Um, Tesla was uh, an amazing thing in an amazing special time, and that's going to be very hard to reproduce those. 
Um, but the ecosystem around the car, all the innovative parking, innovative charging, innovative materials, innovative, you know, these fusion computers that can pull all the sensors and vision together. Um, uh, I think there's literally thousands of really good opportunities um, in, in everything from graphics chips to parking payment systems, all kinds of stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks. We'll have to leave it there, but really appreciate the discussion. And thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks a lot.